Hi there, and welcome to another Osler podcast. My name is Todd Fraser. This podcast comes to you from the 2022 Lives Conference in Madrid. The development of antimicrobial agents is one of the most influential achievements of modern medicine. However, where once we thought the days of sepsis deaths could be numbered, antimicrobial resistance has given us pause for pessimism. Professor Jan de Vala is a surgery-trained intensivist and clinical researcher from Ghent in Belgium, and he works on several aspects of optimising antimicrobial use in the ICU, including antimicrobial stewardship. Jan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, uh, Todd. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Jan, why is there a need for antimicrobial stewardship programs? What's the, what's the problem we're talking about? Well, the biggest problem uh, here, Todd, is that we use a lot of antibiotics. And the thing is, it hasn't really changed over time. When we look at the different iterations of the EPIC studies, for instance, it's stable at around 60 to 70% of patients receiving antibiotics in our ICUs, which, of course, is more than one uh, would expect. Um, overuse of antibiotics leads to antimicrobial resistance. Um, and, of course, there's also the inefficient, suboptimal use of the drugs as well. How have we found ourselves in this position? What are the factors that are driving uh, the misuse of antibiotics, for want of a better term? There's, there's many different uh, drivers of this antibiotic misuse, and it really depends on where you work, and uh, there's different determinants. Uh, one of them probably is that we maybe overestimating the effect of antibiotics in many situations that we use them for. There can be the pressure of guidelines, um, lack of um, information you need to use antimicrobials, for instance, microbiological information, because you don't have a microbiology lab or there's a poor interaction with the microbiologists. Pressure from peers, pressure from patients or families in some situations. In some countries, uh, legal uh, aspects also drive antimicrobial use because physicians are just too worried to uh, miss treating an infection that may lead to um, uh, legal issues at a later stage. Are there specific clinical circumstances where this is a big problem? Is it in particular areas? Is it in duration of therapy? Where is the, the real pressure points? There's, there's different... Um, time points in antimicrobial decision-making. And I'd like to look at it, you know, there's, there's the start of antimicrobial treatment, this during antimicrobial treatment, and the end of antimicrobial treatment. And of course, it all starts with a proper diagnostic uh, process at the start, making sure that you're actually using antimicrobials for infection. Uh, in some studies, it has been shown that one out of three patients who receives antibiotics actually has a low to very low probability of actually having an infection. And I assume that only 40-50% of patients at most is actually treated with antibiotics while having an infection. The others probably have no infection, but we're just too worried. So when we talk about antimicrobial stewardship programs, what are the goals of those programs? Obviously to, to minimize exposure to antibiotics, but what are the sorts of things that you hope to achieve? Reducing the exposure is, is, is definitely the, the most important uh, one because of the obvious link with antimicrobial resistance. Um, depending on, on who you are and how you look at it, you also may, of course, want to see uh, reduced toxicity or lower costs associated with less antimicrobials. But the main reason why we do it is 
reducing antibiotic exposure while, of course, uh, safeguarding patients' uh, outcomes as well. So the concept is clear, but what are the actual actions of a um, of a stewardship program? What are the outputs that you you think they should include? Yeah, well, it starts at the um, moment you prescribe an antimicrobial. Make sure that you have a proper diagnosis, that you select the uh, appropriate therapy, preferably based on local guidelines, uh, for instance. When during an antimicrobial treatment, it is important to reevaluate the need for antimicrobials as well as the spectrum of the drug. And often we can de-escalate. And a very important one is also the duration of therapy uh, because we often forget to think of antimicrobials when the patient is improving. But for the majority of the infections we treat in the ICU, five to seven days is enough. Uh, While in a lot of situations, you see treatments that last 10 or 14 days. In one of the presentations you gave, you made the differentiation between enabling and restrictive actions. Can you explain what you mean by that and what some of those actions are? Yeah, this is um, indeed an important aspect of antimicrobial stewardship. Uh, How do you implement, how do you get where you want? It's not just that you've heard about a new guideline or the use of a new biomarker and you just send an email to all of your colleagues Now we implement the use of this biomarker and this is how you should be using it. It's very important that um, uh, implementation is is also um, is is covered adequately. So there's different types of interventions you can do. There's uh, enabling uh, interventions, uh, which are, for for instance, meetings, uh, audit and feedback, uh, and restrictive interventions, restrictive interventions, Uh, For instance, uh, using an antibiotic formulary or uh, the uh, permission of another physician, typically ID, to uh, use an antimicrobial. Overall, it is logical, of course, that the uh, enabling interventions are better received by uh, physicians and probably also more effective. But in some situations, you really have to uh, use other measures and, for instance, go to restricting certain antibiotics uh, in the hospital. Jan, if you were putting together an antimicrobial stewardship program, who are the key people that you would need involved in that program? There's indeed different parties uh, involved uh, and everybody brings a different expertise and knowledge to the table. I think it's uh, obvious that uh, clinical microbiology uh, is involved, infectious diseases uh, specialists, um, I think are uh, very important here as well. Pharmacy, the clinical pharmacists, definitely an important role for a clinical pharmacist. Uh, infection prevention and control, really important. I think stewardship and infection prevention and control are closely linked to uh, each other. Uh, but of course, uh, and foremost, I think also the intensivists should be involved. I strongly believe that as uh, intensive care clinicians, we should be uh, in this team and take a, a proactive uh, role in, in it. Uh, and also uh, nurses, for instance, I think are also very important to um, to have at the table. Now, also in a presentation that you've given, you you mentioned that infection, uh, sorry, uh, information technology should be involved, which seems odd in the clinical context. Why did you include them? Well, I think there will be an increasing uh, importance of having the correct data, not only to um, implement uh, stewardship, but there's a very important monitoring aspect of this as well, looking at the trends of uh, antimicrobial resistance in your unit, 
looking at the, the antibiotic use, different aspects of uh, antimicrobial use, and trying to link that to uh, outcomes uh, as well. So um, having the data scientists that you know can set up certain um, alarms when the threshold for uh, the use of a certain drug is uh, is met, that kind of things. I, th I think it's uh, it's really important to to have somebody who can actually provide you with preferably real time data on these different aspects of antimicrobial use. Now, a lot of the work you've done is looking at what we actually do now rather than what we think we do. What do we actually do in, in relation to antibiotic use in the ICU? Well, it's it's. I think it's correct to say that, that we often think we do a great job and that we um, maximally use all these different strategies uh, that we describe in antimicrobial stewardship, but the reality is, is different. One of the things, for instance, we investigated in the um, Diana study, which was an intervention, an, an observational study looking at antimicrobial pres prescriptions around the world, is that um, out of all empirical treatments uh, in the ICU, only one out of six was actually de-escalated. So in one out of six patients only, people looked at, okay, what are we using? What is a probably a better choice? And let's indeed change that antimicrobial therapy. Uh, also, the duration of therapy. I think if you would ask the average intensivist how long antimicrobial treatments are in their unit, they would say like five to seven days, unless they start measuring it. And this Brings me back to your previous question. I think it's very important to monitor all of these things and not just assume that your treatment is seven days because it may be 10 or 12 days. And this also allows you to identify the uh, primary targets because this is, again, this is highly variable from one institution to another, from one country to uh, another. And it's uh, very important to know what your local situation is, identify your needs, and then take the appropriate action. What are some of the barriers that you've encountered or others have encountered in terms of rolling out a strategy like this? Where does it go wrong? It uh, probably goes wrong um, at the implementation phase. So people identify correctly what is, is wrong. They may indeed also identify the cause, the root cause of what is uh, why it is going uh, wrong. But then implementing is actually a science in itself um, and a very important one uh, here. Um, so I, I think involving implementation specialists when you develop an antimicrobial stewardship program absolutely makes uh, sense. And, and I like this quote from a um, Dutch professor of uh, implementation science saying that evidence-based medicine should be complemented by evidence-based implementation. Now, we live in an era of evidence-based medicine. Um, there's obviously costs associated with a program like this. If not financial, then certainly opportunity costs. Um, what evidence is there that implementing a system like this makes a difference to outcomes? Yeah, it's an area that is quite difficult to um, investigate, I, I have to say. there's, uh, As you can imagine, there's many, many... Um, determinants of antimicrobial resistance and antimicrobial use in a, a, in a unit. Uh, there are no data confirming that on you know, major outcomes like mortality that this makes a difference, but I think the data are demonstrating that yes, you can reduce your antimicrobial use and 
improve the, the treatment is is quite uh, is quite solid. Um, most of this, of course, is from before after uh, studies. It's not so easy to do a randomized controlled trial uh, on this, uh, but um, the data show that yes, you can decrease the antimicrobial exposure. And to some extent, also the effect on antimicrobial resistance has been demonstrated. Yeah, and one of the um, great paradoxes in this debate is uh, that um, whether we know a patient has got an infection or not in the early use of antibiotics, and in fact, uh, the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines still recommend early implementation of antibiotics. How does that um, uh, interact with antimicrobial mm -hmm. stewardship, do you think? It's an important uh, question, an important problem, Todd. Indeed, there is a perceived um, conflict between, on the one hand, restrictive, well, restrictive, optimized use of antimicrobials, where you would be indeed quite restrictive and only give it to the patients when you're really sure, on the one hand, and surviving sepsis campaigns, guidelines, on the other hand, saying that for every patient with suspected infection and septic shock, because that's an important um, uh, thing to mention, I think, uh, that yes, you need to initiate antimicrobials. There has been a change in the latest iteration of the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines on this aspect, whereas in patients who are not in shock or when you're not sure that there is infection present in a non-shock patient, that there is no need to immediately start with antimicrobials, but you can take time to further investigate a patient, look for alternative diagnosis, where you're not sure at three hours, then yes, initiate antimicrobials. But moving away from this idea that everything that looks like infection should immediately receive antimicrobials. Please also do mind that in this situation, all too often we try, we, we like to extrapolate from the patient who comes in with septic shock to a patient who's been in the unit for some time and where you're not sure if there's maybe a pneumonia developing. Let it be clear that the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines primarily um, are for that patient coming in with septic shock and not necessarily for not shock patients, not sepsis and septic patients in the ICU. I think we, we don't have to jump to antimicrobial therapy in, in the um, ICU patients uh, immediately. Yeah, and there's always new technologies and new uh, techniques that are coming onto the market. How do you think that these new um, uh, the the evolution of these things will influence this process. Mm. I think the, the, the biggest challenge um, still is recognizing whether a patient has infection or not in a patient. You know, a patient coming in with with sepsis. It's easy to quantify the organ dysfunction. It's easy to quantify the uh, shock component, but whether the patient really has infection that's the big issue. So I think biomarkers or trends in biomarkers that help us to identify patients who have an infection as opposed to those who are presenting with inflammation will be an important one. I think the um, different COVID waves also have learned us that um, many things can look like uh, sepsis, uh, but do not always require antimicrobial uh, therapy. So that is one thing. And the other big thing, I think, is the... Um, the um, rapid susceptibility and the rapid microbiological uh, tools that are becoming available where the time lag between sampling the patient and get, getting results which pathogen is involved or which pathogen is not involved and should, should not be covered as well as susceptibility 
allowing you to even more fine-tune the treatment. Having this information available within hours rather than days, I think will also revolutionize antimicrobial use. I think the, um, the phase of empirical therapy in an ideal world would be reduced to almost zero because you immediately know which pathogen is involved or what resistance uh, pattern uh, is present in that uh, patient. So I expect uh, important improvements in the last in, in, in the coming years. As we have to realize, we have to admit that when it comes to clinical microbiology, a lot of the technologies used today uh, has been around for quite a long time. Uh, when we compare this to intensive care medicine, it is a quite striking finding. Yeah, and you've also talked about the role of artificial intelligence in um, antimicrobial use. How do you, how does it apply in this setting? I think we, we're still at an early stage, um, and we're doing some research ourselves into into this. Um, data are important in antimicrobial stewardship, so definitely there's a role there in identifying patterns, um, trends that you see over time in antimicrobial use and resistance development but also predicting the presence of antimicrobial resistance in a patient, predicting the development of nosocomial infections, and again, the certainty when in, whether indeed an infection is present or some other form of inflammation is causing uh, deterioration in a patient. We also do research on predicting antimicrobial concentrations as kind of an alternative to therapeutic drug monitoring. So yes, I think that's one of the many areas where um, data sciences and artificial intelligence will um, will help. Are there any other gaps in our processes that you think need to be specifically addressed? I think there's many gaps. One important aspect, I think, is the behavioral uh, side of uh, this. Um, I think uh, behavioral sciences uh, needs to be urgently involved in the whole discussion around antimicrobial decision-making. Um, I often notice a reluctance to stop antimicrobials uh, among colleagues or among um, surgeons that we work with, uh, for instance. Uh, it's pressure from peers or, or external pressures, but I'm very interested in how behavioral sciences actually influence antimicrobial decision-making much more than the, um, the hard data such as susceptibility or patient uh, clinical uh, status. I think that's a very interesting and exciting uh, topic. Jan de Valle, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast today and sharing your insights into antimicrobial stewardship. Again, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Get access to all our great podcast interviews, as well as hundreds of modules, journal reviews, quizzes, and articles by downloading our free app. Search for My Osler wherever you get your apps, or visit our website at oslacommunity.com.